You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. Father, we thank you that we can come today and worship you through song, through word, through bread and cup. May this time be so rich for us. May it be a blessing and glorifying time to you. And may we walk away a little bit more different than when we showed up. And we will be careful to give you all praise for what you do in our midst and through our community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody already said we got palms. Yes, that's one. Uh, We are five weeks into the six-week series called Follow Your Hunger. And I have to tell you two things about today. One, I was like, we are talking about fasting a lot. So if you're feeling that, just know that I'm feeling that. But we decided we're doing this. And by we, I mean me, and we can't stop this train now. It is full steam ahead. Also today, we're going to do the basics, which probably should have been week one. But it's not. It's week five. So you got some meat up top, and then today we're going to hit some basics about what we're doing and why we're doing this. If, as always, if you have any questions or answers or comments, feel free to send them. I would love to make this more of a dialogue as much as possible instead of you just listening to me for the next 30 minutes. But the reason we're talking about following your hunger is because Lent is a reflection and preparation heading into Easter. We're preparing ourselves to receive the gospel good news again the great high uh, feast of our faith. And so like Jesus, who went into the wilderness preparing himself for ministry, 40 days, he was in the desert fasting. The early followers of Jesus started a 40-day fast heading into Easter of of abstaining from things, uh, of fasting from food to prepare themselves again to receive that good news of Jesus' resurrection. And so that's what this season is all about. They even have words for it. I can't remember. It's like quadragesima, 40 days of preparing ourselves. It was also a time for people who wanted to get baptized to learn about the faith. It was also a time for people, the, the word is notorious sins. Anybody that was a notorious sinner in the church that everyone knew was doing something really bad, it was a time for them to humble themselves and ask for forgiveness. This is a really important period in church life. And in some ways, these practices are older than even Christmas. These were such important parts of the Christian calendar. So we're doing six weeks of looking at hunger or week five. And today, let's talk about the basics. 101 should have been week one. It's week five. As always, we're going to try to do it through head, heart, hands. Something for us to know, something for us to feel with our heart, experience, and then something for us to do. What is the do? What do we do with this information and this this heart experience? And so I always ask that question, what does God want us to know, feel, and do? And so what does God want us to know when it comes to this topic and this season? And for me, it was this, that nearly every major character in Scripture followed their hunger. They abstained and they fasted for periods of time. Nearly every major character Every major person in Scripture fasted at some point. Before we get to them, though, we just got to talk about what is fasting. Because I think it's important 
to figure this out, and I know we know this definition, but let's just say it. It is primarily food. It is foregoing food for a time, sometimes water, but water gets trickier because you've got about three days of water in you, and then it's toast. Food, you can go like a month, two months. Water, but for primarily foregoing food. But sometimes we talk about, kids are getting rowdy. Sometimes we talk about abstaining too. We talk about other things which, is, which are important like chocolate or sometimes some people do wine or some people do TV or some people do their cars, right? They're trying to be, they want to get more exercise, walk, ride their bike. This would be something that we'd classify more as an abstinence than rather fasting because fasting is an abstinence specifically from food. But I'm lumping all that together, whether it's Netflix, it's whatever it is, whatever you think is taking up a lot of your time and distracting you from your faith journey, and you want to, be, to have an intentional time of year where you just really explore that, and you pay attention to that, and you try to make space and time in your schedule to readjust. Fasting is food, or we could talk about abstinence from other things, from Netflix, from news, from whatever it is. And all of that is hard to do. It's hard. It's incredibly hard. A couple hours without food, and I am hangry. I am upset, which is really what all the church fathers and mothers are talking to us about. They're like, try to get less food and then deal with all that anger that comes from that. It's hard. It's hard. It's so hard. I read this article from, it's from last year, but a woman in Russia, part of a, a pretty big Christian community, she said for 16 years she fasted from animal products. A lot of Christians will not eat meat or cheese or dairy uh, during this time. And so she's like, for 16 years I fasted from this. And then I saw a McDonald's ad. And those chicken nuggets look bussin'. That's what she said. No, she didn't say that. She's Russian. And so she got very mad. She went down and she ate her, to her heart's desire. And she said, I can't believe they tricked me into breaking my fast. I have to sue them. And I'm like, how much can she be suing them for? Well, maybe you'd be happy to learn she's suing them for $14. Which, you know what? That shows some restraint. Good for her. She wasn't like, emotional damages, $10 million. Just, I want my money back. And her argument is that this is a Christian society. It was in Russia again. Many people are fasting from animal products. They should not be advertising hamburgers to me during this time. And it was so hard for her to resist the urge that now she's got to take it to the high courts of Russia. It's hard. It's hard. That's the point. The difficulty of it is important. So back to what I said originally, that lots, almost every major person in the Bible fasted. I got a bunch of scripture for you. We are going to go through it. Who was fasting in the Bible? Basically in chronological order. Was Moses fasting in the Bible? Yes. Thank you back there. Moses, there, 40 days and 40 nights, no food or drink. This we would consider a supernatural fast because you need water. David, did King David fast? Yes, multiple times. One of the times was he had a child that was very ill, and he fasted, and he slept on the floor, and he spent the night there, and he begged God for his child. Queen Esther, did she fast? Yes. Queen Esther famously has to go before the king to save her people. So she calls her uncle and she says, have everybody fast on my behalf. And I'm going to do the same thing. Three days, no food or water. And Mordecai, her uncle Mordecai, did exactly what she said. The prophets, did they want us to fast? 
This is, no, this is a trick question test. The answer is all yes. <laughs> Some quotes from our, from our prophets, these people that were very connected to God and the mouthpiece of God. Elijah got up. He ate and he drank, but then that food sustained him for 40 days as he headed up to the mountain of God called Horeb. He fasted for 40 days, food and drink. Again, probably a supernatural fast as he was contending for the life of Israel. Nehemiah fasts multiple times. Every time he hears sad news of his homeland because he's far away, he fasts, and then he shows up and he gathers everyone together and they fast. Ezra is very close to Nehemiah. He fasts multiple times, chapter 8, chapter 10. Every time he sees the unfaithfulness of the people, he fasts. Every time he goes on a journey, he fasts. Ezra is fasting. Joel speaks on God's behalf. Even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your hearts and with fasting. Joel 2 says that. Uh, Daniel famously fasts multiple times from all kinds. of. Sometimes it's just sweets. Sometimes it's whole fasts. But he says, then I turned my face to the Lord God, asking for an answer with prayer and pleading and with fasting. The prophets fasted. We get to the New Testament, because you might be like, that's a lot of Old Testament characters. What's going on in the New Testament, James? I'm so glad you asked that question. It's a brilliant question. Did Jesus fast? This is literally a painting of him fasting. Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was starving. I love that detail. It's like, of course, we, if you can't figure out he's starving, you need to get some better reading comprehension. But just to be clear, he was starving. Points to his humanity, right? He also has the same kind of bodily hungers we have. Paul, did Paul fast? Yes! Thank you for the people still doing it, the last 10. Paul, radical conversion on a road to Damascus, going to try to kill Christians. He meets Christ on the road. He is blinded, and it says for three days he was blind, and he neither ate nor drank anything during his affliction with blindness as he was converting to the faith. The early church, did they fast? Yes, multiple times. And this is actually one of the most powerful examples for me because we are trying to emulate the early church as much as possible. It says, as the church at Antioch was worshiping the Lord and fasting, it goes on to say, what they were doing, but they fasted. The next chapter, they appointed elders for each church. This is Paul and Barnabas going around to these churches that they had planted. With prayer and fasting, they committed these elders to the Lord. In the midst of discerning leaders for their faith communities, fasting was a regular part. I could go on and on. Like when Jesus comes down the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a demon that needs to be exercised. He says, this one only comes out with fasting, where Jesus just plainly says to us, when you fast over and over again, there's this expectation that we would take some time to abstain from things in our life that are distracting us and forego food for some period of time to just bring our body back into alignment with the reality of the world. So who was fasting? As Kung Fu Panda says. Everyone. Everyone? It's everyone? Everyone. It's muted. I'm going to make us do that again. As Kung Fu Panda said. Everyone. Everyone was fasting. Even Jesus. That's it. That's all you get. Everyone. 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 It gets a little more nuanced in there, but I, I think that's a good summary of what we're doing here. So if that's what God wants us to know, 
that all of the heroes of our faith participated in this, then what does God want us to feel? Like, what's the experience supposed to be in the midst of that, and how do we do that well? For me, it came across as this way, that following our hunger, we need to do that for transformation and not for transaction, not transactionally. And that goes with all of our spiritual disciplines, reading our Bible and praying, coming to church, communion. There's a way in which sometimes we want to do the thing so God will do the thing for us. We press the button of spiritual practice so God will dispense blessings upon us. Jesus is just not interested in that kind of transactional spiritual discipline. He talks about it in Matthew 6. We've heard this when it comes to fasting. I've told you before, for Judaism, the three most important spiritual disciplines were giving alms to the poor, praying, and fasting. These are the pillars of Jewish spiritual exercise. And so when Jesus goes to teach about spiritual disciplines, he talks about giving alms to the poor, giving money to the poor, praying, and fasting. And so in the fasting section in Matthew 6, he says, and when you fast, don't put on a sad face like the hypocrites. They distort their faces so people will know they are fasting. I assure you that they have their reward. But when you fast, brush your teeth and wash your face and comb your hair. Don't then you won't look like you are fasting to people, but instead you're doing it in the secret place where the Father dwells with God. Not interested in you trying to do it for reward, especially from other people, but this idea that sometimes we do these spiritual practices to get something from others or from God feels manipulative. It's not the way it was supposed to be. And so fasting, I'm telling you, everybody did it. Everyone's doing it. I'm trying to peer pressure you into doing this. It's a little Bible peer pressure. Everybody was doing it. But why and how? That becomes the next best question. And so we need to figure out our why. And what I really don't want us to do, and maybe our why not, is more important than maybe the why, is that we don't fast or abstain to manipulate God. We don't read our Bibles to manipulate God. We don't pray to manipulate God. And I know none of us... In our hearts, think that we do this, but I think that almost all of us do this regularly. The amount of folks that I have met that come to church because life is falling apart, which is a great impulse. I'm not judging any of those folks, but sometimes they come because they want God to fix stuff, and then they're gone when things get better. It is a way that we try to do our practice to get that transaction of blessing. And God and God's mercy often responds to us positively, but that's not a good reason to do those things. The reason we do our spiritual disciplines like reading scripture and praying and fasting and and being a part of a worshiping community is because it's a reaction. It's a reaction to what God has done or to something else sacred or sad, especially fasting. Fasting is almost always done in reaction to a sacred or sad moment a sadness about all kinds of things in our life. I'm getting this mostly from, this is one of my favorite scholars, Scott McKnight, incredible. I think if you read anything from him, it would be a benefit, a blessing to you. I love him so much that I'm actually going to recommend three books to you before I get to the point of it I was just making. One of them, he just came out with a book about Revelation. If you're always, I mean, everyone's always interested. And it's very accessible. For the rest of us, it's not scholarly. Even though he is a scholar, he's writing it so that everyone can read it. If you're interested and you want to get some good information about Revelation, get Scott McKnight's book, 
Don't be reading people's blogs on the internet. He wrote a book called A Church Called Tove, and it was about how to have a healthy spiritual community. I know a lot of us have been in church for a long time, and there's a lot of wounds that come with that because people are generally awful. But God has called us to live in community, even against some of our wills. And so this is a wonderful book about, about that deconstruction, about what kind of community God has called us to and how to have healthy spiritual community. And so I cannot recommend it more highly enough. And then the book I've been reading this season, I'm about 75% through. If you want it, I'll send it to you. He has a great book on fasting, much more technical, goes through all the ancient fathers and the scriptures and the arguments. And his whole premise is that fasting is a reaction to a sacred or sad moment. But sometimes we have turned it into, if we do this hard thing, God will bless us. And he's like, if you start there, you've already broken it. You've already messed it up. Here's a quote from him, a little bit longer. He says, what we are getting at here is very important. Fasting isn't a manipulative tool that guarantees results. Fasting is a response to a sacred moment not an instrument designed to get desired results. The focus in the Christian tradition is not if you fast, you will get, but when this thing happens, God's people fast. Fasting is a response to a very serious situation, not an act that gets us from a good level to a better level. And so he comes up with this column. And he says, here's what happens is sometimes we fast or abstain or or dive into our spiritual practices And he says, we do that, we start here because we want to get here. We want to get the life and the forgiveness and the safety and the hope and the answers and the help. But he says, really, all these spiritual practices, even worship is a response to God's goodness. Everything we do is really a reaction to what God is doing or what has happened. Now, when there's a death, oftentimes in Scripture there would be fasting or sin, some grievous sin in our community or in our nation or in our own family or in our own bodies and selves. Fast or fear or threats or needs that we had or sickness. These are some of the examples that he lists about. And and so fasting comes as a response, a reaction, not as a results-oriented manipulative tool to try to get the good stuff. Oftentimes God shows up. That's the great mercy of God. But not always. Didn't for David. David's son died. But he still fasted in response to the sickness of his child. Fasting is a response. It similarly for me, it reminds me of my wedding ring. This is a spiritual practice that I use to remind myself of the godly covenant that I made with my spouse almost 20 years ago. A year from August, we're 19 years this August. I like to jump ahead. I do. I told you about time, right? I'm like, it's 20 years. I convinced myself I was 39. I'm like 37. I'm like, I'm almost 38. That's almost 40. I must be 39. 19 years this year. This is a spiritual practice to remind myself of the vow that I made before God and my faith community of my love for my wife. But if I did it in results-oriented way, right? Like, I'm wearing the ring. You should make my dinner. I can use that example because I make all the dinners, everybody, okay? I am the dinner maker. But if I was like, I'm wearing the ring, I expect dinner. That is such an unhealthy way to have this relationship. It's a reminder. It's a reaction. It's a response to the love that we've shared and the vow that we created, this lifelong vow 
that for better or for worse or sickness and health, we are going to stay together. That's my spiritual practice. It's a response. It's a reaction. Not to get the results, but to remember and respond and react to what has been. And so why do we fast and abstain? What's the reaction in that call? And there's lots of things. But mostly, I think if I could sum it up, what fasting is trying to do is to bring our bodies to match the situation or the sacredness or the sadness of the moment. That we could feel in our bodies what our hearts and our minds and our spirit and our soul is experiencing in that moment. And it's primarily sadness. Primarily sadness. Sadness of grief when someone dies. Sadness over sin, over our inability to obey God and the ways in which we've rebelled against God and hurt our neighbors and our family, of injustice and poverty around us, of death, of our world being broken and desiring Jesus to come quickly so that we could be finally home. I have to tell you, I read an article, they were like a comet might hit Earth in 2046, and I was like, that'd be really sad, but also, Jesus, come. You know what I mean? Like, it's time. Where are you at? There's a sadness about the brokenness of our world that we can grieve over. That's what we're doing. We're responding and reacting to the sacredness or the sadness of the world, trying to make our bodies come into alignment with the situation, the sacredness, so we can feel it. So that's how, that's how we fast. Everybody did fast, and it was mostly a response to a sad and sacred situation, oftentimes both. What does God want us to do then? Again, another how question. Wants us to fast. That would be a bad answer here. That'd make it a bad sermon. So what does God want us to do? Following our hunger, God wants us to know and do, helps us in our prayer and helps the poor. And here's how. Uh, this is Isaiah 58, a huge passage on, on fasting. Isaiah, the prophet, comes out against Israel and he says, God has ordered you to fast, but you're doing it wrong. You're hurting each other and your anger and your selfishness and your self-centeredness. You just have messed it up. And so he goes on to speak the words of God. He says, isn't this the fast that I've chosen for you? To release wicked restraints and untie the ropes of a yoke, to set people free and to break every yoke holding people back. Isn't it sharing your bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into your house and covering the naked when you see them and not hiding from your own family? I always love that one. Because when I was a kid, I was like, I don't get it. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, I get it. Hiding from those kids. I gotta, you ever just pull into the driveway and sit there for like 10 minutes? <laughs> Jesus is like, that's not the kind of thing I ask you to do. <laughs> Then your light will break out like the dawn and you will be healed quickly and your own righteousness will walk before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard and then you will call and the Lord will answer prayer. Fasting assists good, proper, right. Fasting assists our prayer. It helps us to call on the Lord and it hurries the Lord to answer. You will cry for help and God will say, I am here. How God wants us to fast has to do with making sure we're caring for our neighbor, we're loving God with our whole self and loving our neighbor as ourself, as Jesus summed up. I can't sum it up any better. Not to 
sit quietly by yourself and just be so self-absorbed in this spiritual practice that you're no earthly good to anyone else. God has some expectations about the way that we fast. So much so that there was a big parable about this. There was this book called The Shepherd of Hermas. It was so popular in Christianity in the 200s and the 300s that it almost made it into the Bible. That's close. Bishops were like, we should just throw it in there. And other bishops were like, no, I don't think we should. And they argued about it. One pope quoted it like it was scripture. Some of the ancient church fathers had it in their list of scripture. It was very popular. And one of the stories is that this guy named Hermas went and he sat on a mountain to fast. And this shepherd comes, but it's really an angel. And the shepherd says, sits by him and says, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm fasting. And he's like, this doesn't look like fasting. Who taught you to fast this way? And he was like, well, these people taught me to fast this way, and I'm just fasting the way that I was told. Sit on this mountain and give thanks to God. And the angel said, that is absolutely not the right way to fast. Let me show you and teach you how you should abstain and fast from things in the world. And he goes on to tell him that it has to do with loving God with your whole self and loving your neighbor as yourself. A quote from the shepherd of Hermas. Very explicit about what and how we should do this thing. He says, when you don't eat that day, estimate the cost of the food that you would have eaten and go give it to some widows and orphans, someone in need. Be humble in this way. How does God want us to fast with a mind towards those who are underserved and with our hearts connected to God? Augustine says the same thing. St. Augustine he says, fasting helps us be disciplined. Your distress, your uncomfortableness will profit you if you afford comfort to others. How many poor can be filled by the breakfast we have this day given up? And then our friend John Wesley does the same thing. He lived this way. For many years, he was a vegetarian because he was like, why should I get meat and vegetables when my neighbors can barely afford vegetables? And so he only ate vegetables to help his neighbors get more vegetables. And he told all of his communities, Methodists everywhere for 100 years fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays, and they took that money and they gave it to people who could use it. And they used that time to focus their prayers and hearts on Jesus. And so he comes up with five rules, and I'm going to be done after this. He says, when you're fasting, there's things you need to do with it. This is how we should fast. He says, do it with your eyes on Jesus. Number one, not on yourself, on Jesus. And he says, we don't do it to get anything from God. This goes back to that results-oriented manipulative tool. We're not trying to get anything from God. It's a way of waiting for God's mercy and blessing. It's a way for waiting for God's grace to heal us. But we're not doing it to try to get God to do stuff for us. He says, we need to humble our souls as well as our bodies. It is not a bodily only practice. We are humbling ourselves, our, our whole selves in the midst of that. He says, we should be completely vulnerable during that time. Confessing sins first. Praying fervently, his quote there, lay open before him all our needs, all our guiltiness and helplessness. And then lastly, he says, in order for our fasting to be acceptable to the Lord, we need to add prayers and gifts to the poor. He calls them works of mercy within our power, both to the bodies and the souls of humans around us. This is what the witness of Scripture and the witness of the early church has told us, that we should fast. We should take times to abstain from the things that are distracting us. Again, from, it can be from anything from news to food to, to Netflix to whatever it is that's got your attention. Phones, 
sports, whatever it is, we need to take some time to reorient our lives back to Jesus. But in the midst of that abstinence, in the midst of that fasting, we do it in a way that blesses our neighbor, especially the underserved populations, and and as a special time of focusing our hearts on the Lord. Following our hunger reorients ourselves to walk more faithfully in the Spirit so that we can give our hearts to Jesus and help those around us. Questions, comments, criticisms, concerns. Hearing none, here is my summary. Following our hunger, true hunger, helps us become like the major characters in Scripture, become like the heroes of the faith that we read about in God's Word. Following our true hunger helps us to not seek transactional experience from God, but we try to have a more transformational experience before the Lord. And lastly, following our true hunger helps us in our praying and our serving the underserved populations around us. And with that, would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for the encouragement, the definitions. Thank you for all the examples, the hall of fame of faith of folks who took this practice and ran with it. Would you help us? Convict us, challenge us, whatever you want us to do. We are ultimately here to serve you and to follow your will. So whatever it is you're speaking to us, maybe you want us to do this, maybe you don't for this season, whatever it is, we ask that your Holy Spirit would touch us to speak to us, to empower us, to go the direction that you've called us. And would you give us the wisdom and discernment to feel, hear, experience that. Father, as we come to this bread and to this cup, we pray that we would meet you here in an undeniable way, as you promised you would meet us at your table. Help us to be aware and awake to your presence, to your grace, to your healing touch. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Table Church, will you help me finish this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father,